And good morning. Wonderful to see you. And thanks so much to Sal and the band. Uh, sounded fabulous uh, this morning, uh, as, uh, as always. But uh, what a lovely time of uh, worship it was this morning. And good morning if you're watching live uh, or later online. Brilliant to have you with us. Uh, we wish you were here, but we're really glad you're at least there watching and being hopefully uh, part of our, um, our family experience today. Here, if you're live in person, welcome to you as well, particularly if you are visiting with us. Uh, maybe this is your first time or, or you haven't been for a while, uh, or maybe you're back for the second or third time. Uh, if that's you, then know that we are, we're so pleased you're here. We hope you feel welcome. And we particularly hope you either got a coffee before the service or can grab a, a free coffee after the service and, uh, uh, and we'd love to chat with you, get to know you and uh, learn about, your, uh, about you. And I wonder this morning, as we continue our series on a God you can believe in, uh, what, what your most memorable moment was uh, this week? I'll give you a moment to think about that. Your most memorable moment this week. Anybody like to share? I've got something that stands out as particularly powerful moment. Good, bad or ugly? Oh, moving house. Yes, the, the closers uh, had, a, had a really big move, moving from one side of the street to the other side of the street. <laughs> uh, not very far geographically, but still a big deal, isn't it? That's, a, that's still a big, big job. So, um, yes, I, I reckon you'll be remembering that for a while. Oh, AJ shared, for those who couldn't hear, uh, his granddaughter who's visiting from the UK said she likes pop. <laughs> Dave said, on which side of the family? That wasn't, perhaps wasn't clarified. Um, <laughs> maybe by the time she finishes, it might go from like to love. Wouldn't that be nice? I'm sure she does anyway. Well, my most memorable moment this week actually came by email. And I'll share a little bit about that uh, in a moment. But first... Uh, a quick recap. Last week in this series, we were talking about faith, and we were talking about some reasons why some people around us are, are losing it of late. And there are lots of reasons. We touched on a few of those last week, and we sought to have what I hope was a, a somewhat honest conversation around some of those reasons, some which are kind of understandable, if deeply regrettable, uh, that reasons that people have turned away. And we acknowledge that sometimes... Those reasons are kind of intellectual reasons, intellectual arguments. We saw some of the arguments that have been made by a group of people who've been called the New Atheists in a series of publications, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens and others. But sometimes uh, it's more personal uh, and it might be what we call pastoral, uh, personal reasons. Sometimes, we said last week, it's because the church has caused them harm or hurt or has kind of just allow them to drift away, uh, or, or simply they now find faith is, is irrelevant to their lives if they ever had any faith at all. And for at least some of those reasons, we said that the church needs to, to wrestle with those and in many cases to repent of those before God and before those people themselves. But this week, I want to flip this topic of losing faith around and look at it from a different angle and ask perhaps a more curious question, and that is this. 
why in spite of all of the reasons that some people are losing faith and some people could lose faith, why are so many people still so full of faith? Why haven't more people lost it? And in particular, why are some people who have every reason that they could or would or should walk away from faith, chuck in the church, give it up on God and lose it, why are they still here? Because I know that if we went around the room today, we'd actually find a lot of stories of amazing inspiring and what we might even call and yet kind of faith stories of how some of you have endured through intense and immense suffering sometimes at the hands of the church and yet here you still are some of you have wrestled with pain and disappointment And all of the rubbish that life can throw at you. And sometimes all of the rubbish that other Christians can throw at you. And yet, here you still are. And here you are still with a faith that's not only intact, but a faith which has sustained you in a way that if someone were to ask you, how is it that you can believe in a good God when you've suffered so much? that you could answer hand on heart, well, it's precisely because I believe in a good God that I've been able to endure all of that stuff, all of that rubbish that life has thrown at me. And without my faith, I'd have, I'd have lost it. Not my faith. I'd have lost my mind, my marbles, <laughs> maybe even my life. And yet, that's the faith I want to talk about today. Because perhaps it's even more explicable that many people still hold on to a powerful, life-giving, joy-giving, endurance-producing, perseverance-giving faith when others who've experienced just a fraction of the same things have wandered or drifted away and and lost it. And if that's you that I've just described, then I, I take my hat off to you. Maybe if that's not you, you aspire to have that kind of faith. And maybe if you're not a person of faith or you're new to faith or you're uncertain of faith or even if your hand's kind of on the door handle and you're halfway out the door towards losing your faith, maybe there's still something in you that kind of admires, maybe even just a little bit envies that kind of faith. You kind of wish that you had it, even if you're not sure you believe at all. Well, just this week, reading an email that came in on Tuesday, I had one of those moments where I was amazed again at the and yet kind of faith of some people I met uh, a few years ago when Louise and I were visiting this beautiful, leafy, European city. 
This is that same beautiful, leafy European city today. Sorry, this is a little bit close to my heart. This is the city of Chernihiv in northern Ukraine, about 50 kilometers from the Belarusian border, and about 80 kilometers from Chernobyl, where the nuclear reactor melted down, uh, I think it was just over 25, 30 years ago. 130, 140 kilometers north of the capital, Kiev. And let me just sort of set a little bit of backstory here. Uh, we, uh, Louise and I, and some friends, we had driven up uh, from Kiev, the Ukrainian capital, uh, because we'd been teaching there for a week or two at the Kiev Christian University, uh, run by the Baptist churches uh, in Kiev. And we came to Chernihiv at the invitation of a local church, which I'm not going to name today uh, for reasons which may be evident. But we were there to bring some encouragement to their youth group and to the church. And the youth group was flourishing uh, in what was then still a, a pretty poor part of Eastern Europe and a pretty poor part of the country. A part of the country where, despite its beauty, had been significantly impacted by the Chernobyl nuclear reactor meltdown. There were health issues, there was a lot of poverty. But this church, not that church actually, that's uh, the Cathedral of the Transfiguration, uh, but it's a, it's a beautiful... No, no. <laughs> Didn't look Baptist at all, no, that's right. But it's a, a beautiful landmark in the... Uh, I think it's been there for 900 years or something like that may not be there for much longer, who knows. But uh, we, were, uh, we were there uh, uh, with the youth group in the church, and the youth group was flourishing uh, despite the challenges. In fact, in the midst of the, f- the challenges and in spite of them. And this church was doing an amazing job of reaching out with love and compassion and care to its local community, providing support for young people and families. And uh, this was the funny bit. On Sundays, uh, we, we preached in the local church. Now, I'm sure those of you who've been around for a while kind of think that I can go on a bit. But if you've ever been to some churches in different parts of the world, you know that our services are actually pretty, pretty short. And that was also the case here in Chernihiv. So on a short Sunday in this church in Chernihiv, there was two sermons. I don't mean short sermons, I mean like full hour long sermons. To, so we're kind of getting away with it easy here. That was a short service. A long service could easily have three or four services. You didn't, make, you didn't make bookings on a Sunday afternoon by the time. You didn't say, like, let's meet at 12 for lunch. You made bookings by after church. When church finishes, we'll catch up or something like that. But anyway, we were part of the church service. And of course, in most of these situations where, you know, us Westerners go places to serve in some way, of course, it was actually us that came away the most moved and the most ministered to. And in fact, I think my strongest memory from that visit and I've been to Ukraine several times, is of the, the very unpretentious people of Ukraine who suffered through some of the greatest calamities in the 20th century. As cannon fodder at the hands of Hitler in World War II, when between 5 and 7 million Ukrainians lost their lives. And also in two great famines in the 20th century, one in 32-33, that's called sometimes the Terror Famine or in Ukrainian, Holodomor, uh, which means uh, this uh, purposeful starvation of the people. And in this famine, between four and seven million people died at the hands of Stalin's policies. And then there was another famine following the war in 46-47 when another million people died. 
This is a nation that knows suffering. And of course now it knows that suffering all over again. And in particular, I was deeply moved by the family of the pastor of the church who were so incredibly dedicated to serving their community for the sake of the euangelion. The father of family was a pastor of the church and the oldest son, who today we'll just call Roland, uh, not his real name, ran this amazing youth ministry and coordinated along with his sisters a very active program, what we might call a kind of humanitarian program in their local community. Well, the email that I got on Tuesday said that Roland had managed via an incredibly long, circuitous and very dangerous route to get from Chernihiv, which is all but surrounded. Uh, this is a Chernihiv in the, in the north there where that, top, uh, where that top circle is. Had managed to get from there across to Poland, get past the Russian troops, which have pretty much got Chernihiv surrounded now. Get to Poland. And he was there able to drop off his wife and his young son in safety in Poland. But then he loaded up what I, what I assume was, uh, it didn't say in the email, but I assume it was their church bus, they have a kind of a coaster bus, with humanitarian supplies to drive back into the war zone, which is Chernihiv, to distribute basic necessities uh, that, are, that are rapidly running out in their city. Uh, and that in itself didn't surprise me that much. Uh, others are doing that and knowing of their long-running kind of humanitarian impulse in this city, um, I... I that kind of sounded about right, the kind of thing that they do. But the thing that really challenged me in this email was the news that earlier, before that, Roland and his family and other family members had been sheltering in the basement of the church when a Russian shell exploded nearby, blew out all of the windows in the church. But rather than taking that, rather than interpreting that as a sign that they needed to pack up all of their family and get out of there, out of Chernihiv, and out of the Ukraine. They interpreted that as a sign that they needed to stay and to care for their community around them. I mean, think with me about this for a moment. The shells are landing, buildings are being destroyed, people are being killed. And your faith says the fact that you were, you were saved from a shell exploding by by um, sheltering in the basement of your church is a sign that God wants you to stay there and keep serving in that community. Well, the sky's falling all around you. And yet, they're there to stay, to love and look after those in need. Well, it, it makes, makes my faith feel kind of small. But it also makes me yearn for that kind of faith, even if a part of me is kind of trembles when I think about whether I could do what they are doing. Maybe that kind of faith is just too full on. And maybe we think they're kind of crazy. Maybe we think they should have got out. Nevertheless, you've got to admire and respect that kind of and yet faith. But if we rewind from the 21st century back to the first centuries after Jesus, we see a similar kind of courageous, full-on, full-of-it faith in the early followers of Jesus. And again, you don't have to believe what they believe to admire the fervency and the passion and the fruitfulness of this kind of faith. For example, 
It was a faith in their Lord who had called them to love their neighbors and especially welcome the little ones that led the first followers of Jesus to rescue newborns off Roman roadsides and rubbish dumps where they were commonly left in the Greco-Roman practice of expositio or exposure. Essentially, this was a form of infanticide or at least unwanted children were left out in the hope that maybe they'd be picked up by another family. Well, it was the Christians who became known as those who would pick up those babies, take them in, love them and care for them, provide for them and nurture them. And it was their faith that led an unknown but reportedly vast number of Christians in Rome to be massacred under Nero, Emperor Nero, in AD 64. This was chronicled by the pagan Roman statesman Tacitus, who about 50 years later wrote this of the Christians. He wrote, they were covered in beast skins and torn to death. I've got a slightly different translation, sorry. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most uh, exquisite tortures on a class called Christians by the populace. An immense multitude was convicted. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of wild beasts, they were torn apart and perished or were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames. These served to illuminate the night when daylight failed. Nero had thrown open his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting the show in an arena or circus while he mingled with the people. Similarly, it was their faith that some 50 years later led many of the followers of Jesus to refuse to recant of their faith and of the gospel and refuse to offer worship to the emperor even when that faith likewise ended in execution. This is a letter from uh, a Roman governor, the governor of Bithynia Pontus province, uh, to the Emperor Trajan in 112. I'll, I won't read it all out. I'll, I'll let you read it to yourself. But basically he says, I, I, I called them in. They've been accused of being this sort of, these Christians. And I threatened them with punishment. And I threatened them again, I threatened them again, and if they wouldn't recant, then I ordered that they be executed. They wouldn't give up and, and, uh, and offer uh, uh, worship to, to the statue of the Emperor Trajan. And it was for faith another 50 years later, in 165 AD, as the so-called Antonine Plague, probably uh, we think now maybe smallpox or measles, was decimating the Roman Empire over about 15 years. And it killed, uh, historians say, probably about 5,000 people a day in Rome alone. This was a pandemic uh, of, of grave proportions. And it was during pandemics like this that the Christians became known as those who would stay to care when others fled for their lives. And it was why in another uh, pandemic of plague, possibly this time we think maybe something similar to Ebola, in about 251 AD, that many followers of Jesus, again, in the words of a contemporaneous source, stayed to love and care as others fled. Even when it meant catching the deadly illness, the deadly plague themselves. And it was why during the great persecution of Christians under Emperor Diocletian in AD 303 to 312, 
when state officials uh, raided a church, probably looking to loot the church, hoping that they'd find treasure of some kind. What they found, among a few kind of liturgical items and copies of the scriptures, was this. This was the inventory that they took. 82 women's dresses, 16 men's tunics, 13 pairs of men's shoes, 47 pairs of women's shoes, 19 peasant capes, and 10 vats of oil and wine. In other words, what they found was a church charity shop without price tags, in fact, without prices. This was what the church just had on hand at that point in time to distribute to the poor and needy in their community. And yet faith. In the face of persecution, execution, and deadly plagues, in cities plagued by the plague, in cities plagued by foreign forces, from the first century to the 21st century, this kind of and yet faith has refused to die. People have remained full of it. Why? Why would people do that? Why would people accept a near certain death sentence to love and care for people? All sorts of good people have done all sorts of good things through human history. I'm not trying to claim that only people of faith do these kind of remarkable acts of humanity. Nevertheless, the evidence before us here is this has been a key and strong and recurring theme from the first century to the 21st century, even at times when the church was getting all sorts of things wrong and committing all sorts of sins. There were still those who were full of a kind of faith that caused them to care, not kill, to love, not hate. So it makes us ask again, why is this so? Why are so many full of it? Well, one way to answer this question is to go right back to the very beginning when faith in Jesus itself nearly died on the vine. The vine of disappointed hopes and disillusioned disciples. And we are in the middle, if you've just joined us today, or just joining us online, we're in the middle of a, a series called A God You Can Believe In, leading up to Easter 22. And last week we looked at what might have been an early Christian hymn, or a, a poem perhaps, which the Apostle Paul, writing to a small house church in the Roman colony of Philippi, had possibly cut and pasted into his letter to make a theological point. And this very early piece of poetry spoke of Jesus as being, as you can see on the screen, Though in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant, becoming human and subjecting himself to death, even death on a cross. Now, you don't need to be a Christian or a follower of Jesus to know that, that you know, the, the cross is kind of a, a big thing in Christianity these days, in the Christian faith. And rightly so, because it's, it's at the cross Whereas we said last week, we see the greatest 
manifestation and demonstration of the love and therefore the character of God. That is, we see what God is like at the cross. We said that Jesus is like the ultimate fact check of the concept or picture or image that we have of God. And if our image of God doesn't line up with who we see God revealed to be in Jesus, then we've probably got the wrong image. God is not a moral monster we see at the cross, as Richard Dawkins has argued. In fact, quite the opposite. He's not a vengeful God committing violence, but rather a God who willingly chooses to suffer violence at the hand of angry, vengeful human beings. And when we look at Jesus, we see the lengths to which God would go to love a world which so often has hated him and to love that world back to him. But initially, at least, it was not the cross. It wasn't the cross which fired up the faith of the early followers of Jesus. In fact, quite the opposite. Jesus' death on the cross brought confusion to the ranks of his early followers. Indeed, rather than inspiring courage, the cross did what Roman crosses were intended to do, scare off the rabble-rousers and troublemakers. And true to form, those who had only hours earlier pledged their undying allegiance to Captain Jesus were, were soon abandoning their sinking ship. You know the story, right? Uh, Peter, I'll never deny you. A little bit later, nope, don't know that chap. Uh, nope, that's not a Galilean accent. Just watch lots of Galilean shows on Netflix. It's kind of rubbed off. And in what might be the loneliest verse of scripture from Mark 14. Then everyone deserted him. And who could blame them? If there was ever a reason to lose it, to abandon faith, this was it. The guy you thought was the guy, God's guy, going to overthrow the might of Rome. Now dead, buried, and decomposing in a rock cemetery with a heck of a heavy headstone. Actually, let me digress for a moment. I've got a, I've got a story to tell. Louise and I, sorry for the travel tales this morning. It's been so long since any of us traveled. It's just kind of like slide, you know, slides of our... Anyway, we were, travel, we were in uh, Vienna in Austria and we, were, we went to visit the St. Marks of Friedhofs or cemetery uh, where it's said that Mozart was buried. Anybody been there? Where's Robin Fischler? Have you been there, Robin? Anybody else been to the, in Vienna? Well, anyway, we were there and uh, uh, they, they don't know exactly where Mozart was buried because it was common at the time to be buried in an unmarked grave. Uh, but they have a bit of an idea and there's monuments and things. We're walking through and then all of a sudden we hear this terrible kind of weird, strange sound. It was almost like a, a piano concerto, concerto, all muffled and, and muddled and back to front. And we turned to a tour guide next to us and we said, did you hear that? What, what was that? And the tour guide said, oh, don't worry about that. That's just Mozart decomposing. <laughs> Sorry. All right, I won't give up my Sunday job. Uh, where were we? A, a little bit of light relief, forgive me there. I've got to find where we were. 
Oh, that's right, the disciples. Or more to the point, where were the disciples? Well, most of them had gone AWOL. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter, Jesus had predicted. And sure enough, the Romans struck the shepherd and the sheep had scattered. So think about this for a moment. One of the greatest miracles of the Christian faith is that there is a Christian faith at all. That should have been the end of it. That's what Roman crosses were intended to do, to cut off trouble at the source, to cut off the head and kill the body of any rebellion or revolution or anyone who got ideas about rising up over Rome. And this should have buried the whole movement. It should have buried the whole faith. And yet. And in case it isn't clear, this crucified would-be Messiah was, apart from his sort of 15 seconds of first century fame, a bona fide nobody. No royal blood, no silver spoon, no born-to-rule entitlement, no throne to inherit. No, not even a battle-hardened general seizing a crown and setting up a court. This crucified would-be Messiah was born in a feed trough, raised a, a, probably a working poor first century tradesman, precisely the type of person that you bury in an unmarked grave. And yet, do you know how unlikely it would be that in ancient times anyone would bother documenting the life of a poor peasant from the boondocks who died an ignoble death designed precisely to wipe them from the pages of history. What are the chances? Next to zero. And yet, not only do we have one such detailed account, as we saw in the video, we don't have just one, we don't even have just two, we have four detailed, largely in agreement letters chronicling the words and works of this backwoods boy written either by eyewitnesses or close associates of eyewitnesses within the early decades immediately after his life and death. And as well as those four detailed first century biographies, we have another 20 preserved letters and documents discussing in dramatic detail this man from Nazareth and his profound importance, so they say, to the world. Now, we don't really have time for it today, but if we had more time, we could talk about some comparison figures. For example, Tiberius, who was the emperor of Rome at the time when Jesus lived and died. We also have four accounts of his life. Some of them weren't written until 200 years after his reign. But we don't have time to go there. Other figures well known to us, Nero, Herod, we have much fewer resources about their life. For some reason, this figure captured the attention of those around him so that we now have four accounts. Not of someone who reigned in Rome, but someone who died on a Roman cross. And what's more, within two decades, this faith is springing up everywhere. Within three decades, the new emperor Nero, Tiberius' successor, 
is throwing these faith fanatics to the wild beast and burning them on crucifixes to light, to light up his garden parties. And by the, the time that the second account of the life of Tiberius has been written, the followers of Jesus have long been self, selflessly serving the outcasts, the unfortunate and the unwanted of the empire. And before long, they'll be sacrificing themselves at the bedsides of the sick and the plague-ridden who'd been abandoned by their pagan family members. And within just several centuries, this faith in a failed Messiah ship, this faith in a Jewish boy from the backwoods of the empire, would capture the heart and allegiance of an emperor himself, Emperor Constantine I, who embraced the faith early in the fourth century. On a scale of historical probabilities, that just doesn't happen. And yet, unless, of course, there turned out to be something extraordinary about this person, unless it was something so extraordinary that it could overnight transform a scattered, dispirited, disillusioned band of odd bods into stake your life on it, I surrender all, no turning back, no turning back, uh, kind of faith. True believers so full of it that it overflowed in compassion and joy and this preaching of the gospel wherever they went and in spite of whatever opposition and pushback they experienced. So what was it that made the difference? Well, as the scholar James Dunn says, it is an undoubted fact that the conviction that God had raised Jesus from the dead and exalted Jesus to his right hand, transformed the first disciples and their beliefs about Jesus. It is also natural that they should have focused their earliest preaching and teaching on filling out the consequences of this basic belief in the kinds of letters and things that we have today. In short, the disciples were transformed by faith in the fact that God had vindicated Jesus as the Messiah and his son by raising him from the dead. But okay, this is where some would understandably push back. This is where the new atheists push back. Well, all this about a resurrection, you know, isn't this a bit just ancient, superstitious nonsense when they didn't know any better? After all, isn't it entirely irrational, a bit unenlightened, a bit unreasonable? Don't we know better today? I was for decade a Sadducee. We know from the New Testament, Sadducees is this group who, who didn't believe in the afterlife at all. They certainly didn't believe in any kind of a resurrection or anything like that. And he says, he's writing uh, just a, a couple of decades ago, he says, I am no longer a Sadducee since, uh, since the following deliberation has caused me to think this through anew. When these peasants, shepherds and fishermen, who betrayed and denied their master and then failed him miserably, suddenly could be changed overnight into a confident mission society, convinced of salvation, and able to work with much more success after Easter than before Easter, then no vision or hallucination is sufficient to explain such a revolutionary transformation. If the defeated and depressed group of disciples overnight could change into a victorious movement of faith based only on auto-suggestion or self-deception, 
without a fundamental faith experience, then this would be a much greater miracle than the resurrection itself. In a purely logical analysis, he says, the resurrection of Jesus is the lesser of two evils when it comes to explaining this. For all who seek a rational explanation of the worldwide consequence of that, that Easter faith. Now, just to be clear, this wasn't a Christian scholar. This was a devout Orthodox Jewish professor of history looking at the facts. And this is precisely the point. Dead people don't rise. They don't today, and they didn't back then. The disciples weren't 21st century scientists, but nor were they first century stupid. They knew from their experience, dead people don't rise. N.T. Wright, the biblical scholar who's conducted an exhaustive investigation into both beliefs about the afterlife in both, uh, into beliefs about the afterlife in both Greco-Roman and Jewish cultures leading up to the life of Jesus, has summarized it like this. The basic tenet of human existence and experience is accepted as axiomatic, that is, fact, throughout the ancient world. Once people have gone by the road of death, they do not return. Christianity was born into a world where its central claim was known to be false. Now, just to nuance that a little bit. It's true that by Jesus' time, various Jewish groups, rather than the Greco-Roman groups, Jewish groups look forward to a resurrection, but at the very end of time. And on that, he says, but nobody in that sort of Jewish community, nobody imagined that any individuals had been raised or would be raised in advance of the last day. There are no traditions about a Messiah being raised to life. Most Jews of this period hoped for resurrection. Many of the Jews of this period hoped for a Messiah, but nobody put those two hopes together until the early, early Christians did so. So here's the thing. Nobody saw this coming. Not the disciples. Even back then, this was just too unimaginable and fanciful a tale to tell. Dead people are dead people. But as Paul would chronicle just a decade or two later, it wasn't a handful of insiders hatching a conspiracy of lies. Heaps of people, most of whom in Paul's day were still alive, also saw this risen Messiah. He says, What I received, I passed on to you, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. If you want to check it out, go and talk to them. Most of, us, most, most of them are still alive, though some have died. And then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me. Well, last week we looked at that hymn in Philippians 2 and how Jesus was seen to descend from being in very nature God to becoming human, a servant, dying on a despised instrument of Roman torture and humiliation. But we didn't see how the hymn finished. The hymn finishes like this. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, 
and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're going to pick that up in the coming weeks when we turn to look at hope and the implications of Jesus' resurrection for all of us, for hope and for the world. But for now, suffice to say, this, this was the faith that the first century followers became so full of. This was what transformed a bunch of downhearted, dispirited, fear-laden disciples into people prepared to lay down their life, face wild beasts, be whipped and beaten and beheaded and crucified and burned on those crucifixes following their Lord. And whether you're prepared to believe it all or not, the fact is that this faith not only turned the disciples frowns upside down it turned the world upside down well whether it was those first century followers caring for the sick and abandoned or the 21st century followers finding that their faith compels them to stay and serve while being shelled from afar this is faith at its best But I also want to put to you today, this should be faith at its normal, not just at its best. There should be no faith at its worst. This is the kind of faith that we, those of us who identify as followers of Jesus, have inherited from our forefathers and foremothers. A faith that laid down its life for its friends. Faith should be defined by the one in whom that faith is placed. And for the Christian faith, the person in whom our faith is placed is the crucified and risen Christ. So just as Jesus is the ultimate fact check of our concept of God, so Jesus is also the ultimate fact check of our faith. If our faith makes us look more like Jesus, a little bit more even, that's a faith worth being full of. If it's faith that makes you hate, it's not faith in Jesus. If it's a faith that overflows into loving God and loving your neighbor, that's faith in Christ. And while it's been so inspiring in recent weeks, as, as we all have, to see ordinary Ukrainians take up arms to protect what and whom they love against the horrors of an outside invader, it's equally or perhaps even more inspiring to see ordinary Ukrainians laying down their weapons and taking up their cross to follow after Jesus in their cities and in their towns and in their communities. A cross of self-sacrifice and suffering in service of their neighbours. Jesus said no one has greater love than this than to lay down their life for their friends. Rather than returning fire, Roland and his family are living their faith by loving their neighbours, perhaps even their enemies. Of course, We may conclude that they're crazy. Maybe I kind of agree. 
But part of me also wants to have that kind of faith, that kind of courage, that kind of commitment. To speak the gospel and to live the gospel together through faith in action. What about you? Where is your faith at this morning? Maybe you're kind of like, no, I, I can't buy it. Not yet. Well, let me ask you, what would it take for you to move closer to faith? And if you are a person of faith, but you've been struggling, if you just, the fire doesn't burn as bright as it used to, let me ask you a similar question. What would it take for you to move further into faith? What steps can you take to move further into faith? Maybe some of these stories of genuine, real, lived faith in action can inspire us to move towards that and yet kind of faith. Well, if you're wondering what steps you might be able to take, let me just give a few suggestions as we wrap up here. Uh, there's, a, there's an excellent podcast series at the moment by uh, Andy Stanley of North Point Community Church in the US. Uh, not saying I would endorse everything he says on the podcast, just going to make that caveat, of course. But you might find it really helpful. If you're still investigating faith, then he's doing a great series called Investigating Jesus. Of course, hope you'll continue to join us here in this series as well. But that, if you want to go further, that might be helpful to you. Perhaps also, maybe I could challenge you, wherever you're at in your faith, to read through one of the accounts about Jesus from those early sources once again. But read it with the question in mind, what was it about? Jesus, that so inspired his first century followers and can inspire, inspire us today in the 20th century. If you're doing that, I, I, I particularly recommend Luke, but it doesn't matter, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John. And if it's been a while since you've picked up your Bible, maybe this is a week where you could make that move again. Start reading through, read a chapter or two, pick it up the next day, read some more until you reach the end. Also, perhaps uh, you might like to watch a movie called For the Love of God, uh, which is available at Kurong or online. Uh, a, a movie about kind of the best and the worst. It's a documentary. Best and worst uh, in church history, put together by the Centre for Public Christianity team in Sydney. So it's an Australian production. Or you could try reading Bullies and Saints by John Dixon, which I've referenced a few times in this series. Also, you could come to Jesus the Game Changer at Vintage on Wednesdays. I think that's an on-again... This Wednesday, David, is that right? Next Wednesday, I'm sorry, next Wednesday uh, here at Vintage. And we'll also be using this series as, as a kind of a course uh, for exploring more about Jesus out of the back of this current sort of preaching series. It'll be one weeknight. Watch here for details, but I encourage you to get along in the meantime to Vintage if you're available on Wednesday mornings. And finally, maybe, let's be asking God this week to fire up our faith again 
to help correct our concept of God by looking at God through the lens of Jesus. And by finding in the stories and the testimony and the witness of those who've gone before us in faith, inspiration that, in, that fires up our faith once again. But, if, but faith is not just belief. Faith is a trust that moves us to action. It's a trust in God that moves us to put our mouth, uh, money where our mouth is. So I'd encourage you, as you pray about God, fire up my faith again, or take me further into faith, at the same time, be looking for ways to put that into action, as I know many of you do every day in service of someone who needs your love and compassion. People who need to know our crucified and risen Lord. The music team's going to come again while I pray. Lord, again, I pray that wherever we are at on the journey of faith, maybe we're in the early stages, not even there yet, or maybe we're moving towards it, we sense we're interested, we're intrigued, we want to know more, we're not quite there yet. Or maybe we've been around for a long time, maybe our faith has grown a bit cold, we can't imagine living with the kind of commitment and courage that some of those we've heard about today live. Wherever we're at in that journey, maybe it's a journey outward from faith, I pray that you would move in us this week by your Spirit to move us back towards a faith that we can be full of in a God we can believe in, a God we see in the risen Christ. I pray this in his name and for his kingdom. Amen.